Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers here. Glad you are here and glad you are able to spend some time with the people of God this morning. I was committed to not talking about my mother today because I thought that's not fair because everybody, nobody else gets a microphone to talk about their mom. And, um, and then a friend of mine came up to me first hour and said, I miss your mom. I was like, oh, thanks a lot. You know, it was like, oh. So, and my sister's here this morning too. It makes me think about my mom. And uh, my mom's in heaven now. And uh, she's been there since 2005. And I do miss her greatly. But I thought I would share some convictions with you uh, that my mom shared with me about Mother's Day. I have three of them. I just wrote them down first hour. Number one, if it plugs in, it's not a present. Um, so... Uh, translation, if it's an appliance uh, made for serving others, uh, it's not really a gift. Um, that's the funny one. Another one would be um, that children do need to love their mothers, and the church can maybe even help them do that. And that's why years ago she said, can I buy flowers so that children can give their moms flowers? And we still have that tradition with us, so I'm thankful for that. I think about every time I think of my mom, because she said, that's a good idea, I'll pay for it. She hasn't been paying for it lately. Um, now it's a church budget line item. But anyway, um, and a final conviction I'll share with you about Mother's Day that I would have gotten from my mom, uh, and that would be that Christian pastors need to preach Christian sermons uh, even on Mother's Day. Uh, because ultimately the Bible is about Christ. He's the hero, and uh, I'm so thankful that that's how my mom would have thought. And if she were sitting right there, because that's where she'd be if she were here this morning, she'd be the lady with the big hair. Um, she would say amen to that. Uh, preach Christ and love me, but love me even by preaching Christ. And so this morning we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 11. And if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11 for a Christian sermon. And we're going to be talking about one of the most important things we do as a church. One of the most important things we do as Christians, but certainly one of the most important things we do as a church, um, that is that we observe or we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This morning we are going to have communion, uh, or you can call it the Lord's Supper, when we take bread and we take wine and we eat and drink in remembrance of the perfect work of Christ. This is something Christians have been doing now since there's been Christianity, and it is indeed one of the more important things that we do. And we'll see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be able to, to make these observations, and I trust it'll enhance our worship. In fact, I trust that our study will even be worship. If you would, follow along with me, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, until he comes. What we're going to do this morning is focus on that text of scripture and we're going to make observations about why it's important. So if you'd like to take notes this morning, an outline would be we'll look at seven reasons why Christian communion is very important, why it is vital for us, why it is a priority for us as a church. Um, 
and why it should cause us to want to worship Christ even more faithfully. So we're making observations, drawing conclusions from this passage about why it is important. And if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time, I'm here as a friendly reminder, I hope. This is something we're going to be doing until Christ returns. And so let me remind you about why. Um, If you're a brand new Christian, uh, let me educate you or help you to see in scripture why we do this uh, maybe you're maybe you're not a christian this certainly is helpful you will understand christianity better today um, if you understand why we take bread and why we take wine and why we eat and why we drink in remembrance of christ reason number one why it's important reason number one why it's a big deal and that is because it acknowledges it affirms it proclaims the sovereignty of Jesus. It affirms, it proclaims, it declares the lordship of Christ, if you'd like to call it that. That he is supreme, that he's in charge, that he is, to use other biblical titles, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. You don't get any higher than him. And he is the one to be followed. Think with me, if you would, before we look at our passage again and seeing this. Remember Jesus, according to Acts 20, bought the church with his own blood. It belongs to him. He's the sovereign over it. He's the king over it as savior. Not only that, remember in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. It belongs to him. It's his. Today, Omaha Bible Church is going to say, Bread, wine, eating and drinking in remembrance of Christ because Jesus said so. And by doing so, Omaha Bible Church is going to be, whether we realize it or not, and too many times we don't realize it because we're familiar with it, we're saying Jesus is the King. He's above all. We submit to Him. We have no higher allegiance than Him. And that's a good thing to do. That's sane. Because indeed, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We see this in in our passage that we just read uh, in a couple of important statements. In verse 24, uh, toward the end of verse 24, where Jesus says, This is my body which is for you. And then He says, Do this. There is the command. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a mandate. It's something that He is telling us we must do. Then it says in verse 25, about halfway through, in the second sentence, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We have these statements by Jesus. He's saying, do this. Do this. Then the Apostle Paul, remember an apostle is one who has the authority of another. They speak on behalf of another with their authority. Paul, an apostle in 1 Corinthians, he's not just any apostle. He's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's speaking authoritatively for him. He quotes him and says, church at Corinth, do this. Then we have this going on till Christ returns. And so this baton has been passed on to church after church after church after church ever since there have been churches. Do this. And whether we're conscious of it or not, and I'm trying to remind you of it this morning, let it be known in this place, in this hour, that we believe with passion and conviction that Jesus Christ is the ultimate King. He's the ultimate Sovereign. That ultimately this is not your church, this is not my church, it's His, it belongs to Him. And by you doing what He says, you're affirming that, by the way, you're a sane person. (laughs) Because it would be insanity 
to not do what he says, especially in life in the church. We're acknowledging that. I, I love it that today when we eat and drink, we're making a proclamation. We'll talk more about that. But as we're making that proclamation, we are saying, we're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. We are saying, this is not Omaha Bible Club. This is Omaha Bible Church, and Jesus is building His church, and it belongs to Him by virtue of His great payment of His great blood. We should be encouraged by that. We should be encouraged that by acknowledging His sovereignty, we're, we're worshiping Him, we're, we're uh, adoring Him, we're seeing His worthiness above all else. This, by the way, sometimes for us is a bit of a struggle. Now, if you're, you're, you're just so used to church culture, maybe it's not a struggle. This is just what we do. Good job. Remember why we do it. But it can be somewhat of a struggle when we think, hmm, we don't live very close to uh, Palestine. Um, we don't live anywhere close time-wise to the first century. Well, not to mention the fact that this is actually tied to Passover, and Passover is way predating first century. Um, not too many of us have Jewish blood. Most of us are Gentiles, and this actually started with a, a Jewish kind of thing with Passover. Um, 21st century middle America, we're not even on the coast. Why in the world would we be taking bread and wine, which came from Passover, Old Testament, and do this in remembrance of Jesus. You know, I might have a better, more relevant way to communicate this. The reason we don't do that is because this is what Jesus said to do. And not only that, it's tied to His return, and so it's not to be changed. And it is a challenge, though, when you think about it. Think about how relevant this is to someone who doesn't know church culture. It's going to mean you have to explain it to them. They have to learn church culture and understand the significance of it. I, I remember very vividly inviting a friend of mine to come to Omaha Bible Church. I remember the day that he walked in and was standing in the back right over there during this service, and I'm up here for Scripture reading, and he's in the back waving at me. First time he'd ever been in a church in his life. First time he'd ever read a word from the Bible was when I gave him a Bible. I gave him two Bibles. Talk about confusing. Um, <laughs> but I had to meet with him and talk to him about what's, what's going to happen. I had to help him kind of get up to speed on church culture and, and, and why we're going to pass furry bags around, you know, <laughs> figure that out. Uh, why do you do giving and, and why scripture reading and why sometimes standing and where do these traditions come from and why singing and, and, and why preaching? Why is the priority there? Why is the Bible laid out the way it's laid out? And you know what? I was almost wishing that Sunday we didn't have communion. Why communion? What's the significance of that? Well, I had to explain it to my Hindu friend. Just like you might have to explain it to your modern friend or your postmodern friend, whichever sphere you think you live in. But it's worth it because not only will you help them understand Christianity better, it is acknowledging that the King of kings and Lord of lords is your Lord and He's your King and He's your great Savior and you're going to be committed to Him and doing what He says. Omaha Bible Church has to make that decision as well. It's a good thing to be able to do that. 
Let's move on to a second reason for communion and, and its significance. Not only do we acknowledge the lordship of Christ in doing what he says, number two, it re-preaches the gospel. It re-proclaims, it re-preaches the gospel. Look at verse 26 with me, if you would, in your Bible, where it says, uh, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a gospel proclamation, is it not? You proclaim, you preach, you herald, you, you, you raise your voice and say, I've got good news, I have an important announcement. The Lord's death, which is apostolic shorthand for the gospel. Now, he could, sometimes he emphasizes the resurrection like he does in chapter 15. Sometimes he emphasizes other aspects. But everyone in this room, for the most part, generally speaking, who's been associated with Christianity at all, we know that that's shorthand for the gospel. By, by doing this, you are making a proclamation. What are we preaching? What are we proclaiming together? On those communion Sundays, everyone at Omaha Bible Church is a preacher. Whether you like preaching or not, you're joining in it. We're making a proclamation, a declaration with joy and saying, we believe and we affirm the death of Christ. Well, we're preaching the gospel. And by the way, associated with the death of Christ is the resurrection of Christ. Associated with the death of Christ is reconciliation between God and sinners. Associated with the death of Christ is justification, being declared righteous even though you're not. Not only that, you've got um, uh, all other kinds of realities. Sanctification, justification, reconciliation, atonement. You want other big theological words? Propitiation. All of these great realities... We're proclaiming. It's a gospel service. It's a great thing. It's a great thing for us to be able to partake in and participate in. Whenever you think about what's happening here, I would encourage you to be able to think even deeper about what's behind it all. You think about God's great love. He loved us when we were still His enemies. You think about Christ giving himself up for us. Oh, his substitutionary work. And he did it willingly. That our sins are atoned for. God's justice is satisfied. That while we were aliens, now we're made not only friends, we're actually considered family members. Not only that, we're all called, whether male or female, sons. That means we're in that unique place of inheritance. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Just off the top of my head, I just started writing down Bible passages that helped me understand what he was getting at. 1 Peter 3.18, substitution. Romans 3.25, atonement. Forgiveness in Ephesians 1.7. Reconciliation in Romans 5.10. Resurrection, Romans 7. Four, justification, Romans 5, 1. Then I also wrote down 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ is our Passover lamb. Oh. Communion is a re-preaching of the gospel. Even causing us to maybe look backward in time and look back to the Old Testament, back to the Passover, realizing that was all in anticipation of the ultimate Passover lamb. Foreshadowing the one who would come is so good this preaching service that we have and that we all participate in preaching Christ now isn't it interesting that this is a preaching service and it's not an evangelism service I find that fascinating isn't the gospel for evangelism 
Yeah. But the gospel is for worship of believers too. I don't want to take a lot of time on this one, but think with me, if you would, about 1 Corinthians and, and how it fits together. They're gathering for worship. Believers are gathering for worship to the point where later on we're not going to go there when he's talking about the abuse of spiritual gifts, when the body's together and people are abusing their spiritual gifts. Paul, almost as if he's startled by it, he says, hey guys, what if an unbeliever stumbles upon you? It's not the norm for this to happen, but what if it does happen? Because it does happen, the unbeliever is going to think you people are crazy. Just going to my point to bring out to you to hopefully make you see it for what it is. When we gather and we take the bread in remembrance of Jesus and we take the wine in remembrance of Jesus, we're proclaiming the gospel as part of worship. The worship of believers. Because ultimately that is what's going to fuel our worship. The good news that we have a substitute. The good news that our, our sin has been forgiven. The good news that God isn't angry with us even though He has every right to be angry with us. The good news that we're sons is so good. It's so good. Let's move to a third reason for communion significance and that's because communion reminds us of the sureness of our salvation. It reminds us of the sureness of our salvation. That it's complete, that it's definite, that it's not I hope so, that it's not wishful thinking, that it's sure. And while it's not explicitly stated, it certainly is implied and necessarily implied in these two statements. Look at verse 24 at the end where it says, uh, quoting Jesus, Do this in remembrance of me. Then at the end of verse 25, in remembrance of me. Well, in remembrance of what? What's he getting at? Well, even in our text, it's in remembrance of his death. Sure, finished, complete. He, he's not saying, do this in remembrance of my good example. And if you only are a good enough follower of my good example, God will eventually accept you. That's not sure. Because let's be honest. I'm not, such a great I'm not such a great follower of Jesus. When God's requirement is love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, I'm slain yet again. And Jesus did all that perfectly. Do this in remembrance of me and my good example. And if you're only a good follower, God will accept you. That's not sure. That's surely miserable. What we're doing when we have communion is we're, we're making a declaration, we're, we're affirming something, and that's Jesus dying. Work is done. We read about it in Hebrews earlier. When he, his work is done, he sits down. It's sure. Do this in remembrance of me, my death, my finished work implied with that or, or eventually brought out even in First Corinthians is resurrection. And by the way, we're not reading too much in, in, into it either because keep looking. Look what it says in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now think with me about how that works. We're not talking about a dead Savior. We're not talking about something that is unsure. Oh no, if He's coming back, that means He raised. He was raised. And not only that, He ascended like in the book of Acts. That's sure. 
It's sure. Paul in Acts chapter 17 talks about the sureness of Christ's return. How do we know that it's sure? Because he was raised from the dead. Or early on, even earlier than that, in Acts chapter 1, how do we know that he's going to come back? Well, because he went up, he ascended. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's a view toward what he has done in his death, and what he will do in his resurrection... We're standing on confident ground. It's reminding us of the sureness of salvation. It's not, I hope so. It's, I trust in one whose work is complete. And then, we won't take the time to go there, but you you start seeing connections with Christ's return, and, and that being associated with when we enter into the fullness of our salvation. To quote John, we'll see Jesus and we'll be made like Him. Uh, It's what in theology they talk about, the the consummation. Well, it's already as good as done because of what Jesus has already done, but we are looking forward to full experience. We are looking for the, the entering into the fullness of that rest, even though we have the rest now because of what He's done. Could you guys just help me out a little bit? Let's just pretend like it's Omaha Baptist Church. Come on, man. Just if somebody would say amen, it might rescue me. <laughs> I'm just having my own little worship experience here, thinking this is all pretty great, and you guys are, you know, rigor mortis sets in. Um, I mean, I'm glad you guys are all right about this stuff, and you're so far beyond me, and so much. Anyway, you get the idea. You've been scolded. Uh, <laughs> Salvation for the Christian is a definite reality. And when we eat and drink, we are acknowledging, affirming, proclaiming, and saying, salvation is sure. It's sure. He's coming back. That's how sure it is. Number four, a fourth reason for communion significance is because communion promotes spiritual growth. It promotes spiritual growth. If you'd like to use the fancy word, you can use the word sanctification. But it's just spiritual growth. And it's the right kind of spiritual growth. It's gospel-based spiritual growth. Becoming a Christian. This is just Christianity 101. Becoming a Christian has nothing to do with your effort. That's why Christians now for a long time have been saying it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's all Christ's effort. There's no perspiration involved on your part spiritually or physically. We're resting in the work of another. We're trusting in the work of another. Faith is not a work. Faith means trust or dependence. He carries us, if you will, is the right image. And our spiritual growth is tied to His work as well. But you are called to action. Okay, If you're a Christian, based upon the work of Christ, you now are called to live like the new creature that you are. You, you've been given a new heart. You've been given the Spirit of God. You're to bear much fruit. And so now we, we do engage and we're called to do things. The Bible, the New Testament is filled with commands, right? 1 Corinthians is filled with commands so much, and especially pronounced because they, they're, they're so, so off track when it comes to spiritual growth. They, 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 they've been taken to the woodshed, right? Like few have in the Bible. They're, they're a messed up bunch. Sometimes I think I pastor 
church at Corinth. But anyway, but it has nothing to do with anyone in this room. Um, <laughs> you're green coming out of seminary. Oh, it's so good. We've learned all these lessons. And no, Christians don't sin. And everybody does the right thing. And, you know, it's like, hello. <laughs> so, has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But thanks for being my counselors. Um, you're called to do something. Like Romans 12 talks about, in light of all of what God has done in Christ, live a certain way. Respond out of gratitude is a good way to put it. Christians have been saying it that way for a long time. Not to pay your way in, but because Christ has secured your way, offer your life a life of gratitude out of devotion to God. Communion helps us with that. Because... Our tendency is to say, oh yes, I believed in Jesus, I move on. Do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. Read 1 Corinthians and just watch for how much Paul emphasizes the gospel. Again and again and again and again and again. From the first chapter to the last chapter, it's gospel everywhere. And he's always taking them back, sometimes gently to the cross. Sometimes by the nape of their neck to the cross. But in essence saying, in light of what Christ has done, and you say you're a Christian, you live differently. And let me motivate you. Let me help you to live differently. Here's what Christ has done. You struggle, you're struggling with doing the right thing? Motivation? Here's what Christ has done. Having a hard time over here? Let me help you with what Christ has done. Communion does it. It's wonderful. Here we are, Omaha Bible Church, gathered today, celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's meant to be, among other things, a reminder to you about what Christ has done and therefore a motivation for you to do the right thing out of gratitude. Now, all that sounds good theoretically, but let me show it to you actually in the passage. So if we look at the emphasis in verse 24 that we've already looked at, do this in remembrance of me. He is talking about his death as we've already seen. Uh, then again, he says in remembrance of me in verse 25. And then he talks about the death in verse 26. So he's talking about the gospel. There's no debating that. Then keep moving on. Look at verse 27. Now, in light of the gospel, he wants people to live more consistently. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30 says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 32 says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's gotten so bad and so flagrant that they need to be taken to the woodshed. Of all people, oh no, how about this? At, uh, of all times, you're, you're coming face to face with this, this physical illustration of the gospel and, and you're still living in sin? You better watch out for the discipline of a loving father. But nevertheless, see it for what it's meant to be. In light of the gospel, communion shows us the gospel. 
live different. Live different. I, I so badly as a pastor and as a Christian want Omaha Bible Church to think and behave differently. One way that we can be helped to do that, to live more consistently with what we say we believe and how we act, to have our, if you want to use theological um, jargon, to have our sanctification, our spiritual growth, look more and more like our justification, our position in Christ. I want us to be more consistent in that because I know that's the biblical model. model that's what we're looking for. One great means, one great means, is communion. Remember what Jesus has done. He shed His own blood to atone for your sins. He gave Himself up for us to reconcile us to God. Leads to gratitude. Leads me to also realize I don't want the discipline of my loving Father. I want to do the right thing. I want you to want to do the right thing this morning, not because I'm just dumping more guilt on you, but because of God's great grace in Christ. You see? Before we move on, uh, I want to pose a theoretical question that's a, a significant controversial theological question. Not all of you like controversy, but about 99% of you do. Um, <laughs> it's not really true, but... One controversial question, if you're not up to the controversies and the debates, that's fine. Um, one controversial question within Christianity is, is communion a means of grace? It's a big question. It is, a, is it a way that God gives us grace? I'm going to answer no and yes. No, if you mean in the hocus-pocus sense. Interesting word origin. I'm not getting into it now. No, not in some kind of hocus-pocus sense. It's not that, oh, by drinking and eating, God somehow infuses uh, this, this mysterious stuff called grace, and He kind of fills up my grace container... I'm going to lose it during the week maybe, but he's going to fill it back up if I eat and drink the right things. And eventually, if I have a full grace container, then God will accept me. If I have enough graces, which is a wrong way to see what grace is, because grace is nothing. Grace is God giving you something you don't deserve. You don't have graces. No. Communion is not a means of grace. But we're so afraid of that, and we should be we swing the other direction and we say communion is nothing. In essence. Or a little bit safer, it does nothing. I don't think it does the hocus pocus stuff. But it most certainly does something. They didn't do anything. Why are we doing it? What does it do? It reminds us of the finished, perfect work of Jesus to the point we can proclaim the Lord's death. It's showing us the Lord's death. And we can proclaim the Lord's death in His finished work until He comes again. Oh, that's in view of we're going to stand before Him one day and we want Him to be pleased with us as His children. Those of us who say we've trusted in His work, that does something. I, it, in that sense, it's most definitely a means of grace. It motivates us. 
Think about what means of grace can mean in the most positive light. God has given us something that we didn't earn. That's grace. Who here earned communion? Who here made it up themselves? Nobody here made it up. Jesus gave it to us. He gave it to us without us earning it. That's grace. And it's used in our life, life of this church, life in your life as a believer, to want to bring about gratitude so you live differently. I'm so thankful for that means of grace. It's good for us. It stimulates our spiritual growth. Gospel growth, not not legalism made up, more rules, more regulations. But it, it does something in our lives. And by the way, it's when the church is gathered together. We're going to see that in just a little while. It's in the context of one another. It's in the context of being together. Another place where spiritual growth happens. Causes me, by the way, just off, off topic a little bit, to want to be involved and be around where there is the Lord's Supper because God's given it to us and it actually helps me. Not in a magical way. Not in an osmosis kind of way like I used to study for tests in college. You just lay your head on the books. Wipe the drool off when you're done. Um, (laughs) It's active. It's real. Brings us back to Christ. Let's move on now to number five. A fifth reason for communion's significance is because communion clarifies our message. It clarifies our message. It refocuses us as a church. Uh, Remember what he said in verse 26. Once again, we're going to look there uh, where it says, For as often as you eat this bread... Remember, he's talking to the church at Corinth. He's talking to a church made up of individuals, yes, but he's talking to a church. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's a great clarifier and it's a great reminder to us of what, follow me please, what we do proclaim as a church. What's our message? Our message is Christ crucified. This, 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 is, this is what Paul says in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 2. I determined, I resolved, I made up my mind when I came to you, specifically there when I came to you and you were unbelievers. When I came to you, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him what? Him crucified, Him dead, substitutionarily, to make up a word maybe, I don't know. That's a great clarifier, because what are we? What are we? I'll confess, we're prone to wonder as the hymn goes. It's a haunting hymn because the guy that wrote that denied the faith eventually. Yeah, we're prone to wonder, all right. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. So we're prone to wonder and we're prone to watch our friends saying, oh man, my friend goes to this church and they've got a new program, they're doing this. And and another friend of mine, they've got a new program and man, they are growing like crazy. You should see their budget. And not only that, I've got a friend who's not even part of a church, he's part of a different religion. And... And they really seem to be successful. And not only that, the culture's really listening to them. It's amazing how the culture's listening to them. And you know, um, maybe we need to be involved in that. Maybe we need to be involved in that. Maybe we need to be involved in this. And before you know it, it's like, what trend should we follow next? 
Communion is a great clarifier, a great refocuser, because whenever we're eating and drinking like this, what is it calling us to do? To proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Oh, by the way, that means it's going to be lasting. It doesn't have to be a trend. We're refocusing on what we're all about. What is our, as I like to say so often, one string that we have on our guitars? It's the gospel, 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 gospel. Knowing full well, as Paul had to rehearse at the beginning of the book, that certain people are going to say, and you people are crazy. A crucified Savior? A dead Savior? I don't think so. And Paul says, ah, power of God unto salvation to those who are the called. Communion is a great thing for Omaha Bible Church and its members for us. Why are we in Omaha, Nebraska? I don't know the answer to that question, but <laughs> why, why are we here? What do we do? What is our message to a watching world? Well, I think there are a lot of social ills in our culture, and it's about time the church got involved in that. Really? You might want to read 1 Corinthians. There were a lot of social ills in the culture there. Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you. There was all kinds of problems going on at Corinth. Read 1 Corinthians. Church... What's the note you play? Gospel, 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 gospel. The Lord knew that we would need to be reminded. Communion is a great reminder to us. We have the gospel message to proclaim. That's what we do. That's what we're about. I'm really thankful for that. Like never before in my life. Do this in remembrance of me. What did Jesus come here to do? To save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1. Before his life ever even gets rolling. You shall call him Jesus. Because he will transform the culture. Nope. You shall call him Jesus. Because he will get good people to act good. Nope. He will get bad people to act good. Nope. Call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. Communion reminds us of who he is and what he did and therefore what we do. I love that. Let's move on to number six. Number six, a sixth reason for communion significance is because communion exposes pseudo-Christianity. We're going to do seven of these. The last one is fast. Number six, though, is communion exposes pseudo-Christianity. In other words, it's a great dividing line. Uh, it helps us to, to, to know where people are. Here's what I mean, real life. You say to your friend who says they're a Christian... What does your church um, believe about the meaning of communion? You're going to learn a lot. Talk to a religious leader who is part of a Christian religion group. Say, well, what, what, do, what, what, what do you believe about the, the, the wine and the bread? What does the pastor do to the wine and the bread or not do? You are going to find out a lot. Communion really helps us figure out where people are in their understanding of Christ's work. Is His work a once and for all giving of Himself in history 2,000 years ago 
once and for all satisfying the just wrath of God? Or is it something that is ongoing and repeated and not just done by himself, but something that actually is redone and recreated by human beings, pastors? It's clarifying. And that helps you understand. So do you believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone? in the finished work of Christ alone? Or do you believe in salvation by what you do and what Jesus does, which makes us two different religions, not just two denominations? And if you wanted controversy before, now you got it. Communion divides. It unites. That's the last point. We're not there yet. It divides. But Jesus is the one who said he came to bring a sword, and what do swords do? <laughs> they divide. I'm so thankful to be able to ask my friends, what, what do you believe about communion? I like to ask them other things. It's not the most important thing in the whole world, but it's a great way to try to figure things out. It's a great way to figure things out in Omaha, Nebraska, given the religious culture that we have. If you would, um, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, uh, just to see this a little bit better, um, and if you're ready to be done looking at passages, that's fine if you just want to listen. As you're turning there, um, you've got statements about the gospel and what Christ has done and completed. When I ask someone, what do you believe about communion? I find out if they affirm these realities or not, basically. Now, to give you an illustration that might bring it real close to home, um, Molly and I have a friend. Uh, we have some friends. Amazing, I know. Um, <laughs> we have some dear friends. And what is has kept them from coming to Omaha Bible Church, having talked to them about spiritual things for years now and, and just have a dear friendship with them, is that we don't have the Mass. Okay? That, that I, as a pastor, don't turn the wine and the bread into the body and blood of Jesus. And that by offering it on the altar, I do not... provide atonement for their sins. And therefore, the forgiveness of their sins. I, I don't do that. And they know that I don't do that. Okay? So, here's what I've said to them. Because it's been the hang-up. If your pastor, if your priest can actually do that. Okay? Because according to Roman Catholicism, on the book's official documents, it is a true propitiatory sacrifice. It is an atoning sacrifice. It actually atones for sins and brings forgiveness. If they can do that, you need to stay there. Because I can't do it. Think about it. If, if they can actually do that, you're guaranteed when you come there, they're actually going to change the elements. It's an unbloody sacrifice, as is said by Rome, but it is genuinely propitiatory. It is atoning. Then you, everyone here should go there. Everyone should go there. It's guaranteed forgiveness. But I also say to our friends, 
If the Bible teaches that Jesus once and for all propitiated the wrath of God in history 2,000 years ago in real time and real space and he gave himself and he and he alone gave himself not given through a human being priest then you need to leave there and you need to go to a Christian church like Omaha Bible Church see it, there's there's a line and I'm not trying to be controversial but it's really helpful it's helpful in light of Galatians where Paul says it's either all of Christ or not finished work of Christ in time and space one Friday afternoon in the Middle East or not that's not unloving or unkind to draw those lines it's just helpful and honest I realize we live in a time where we would love to say that something can be true and not true at the same time as long as we're sincere go figure I keep telling visa I'm sincere about my bill and I think it means five dollars not five thousand but they don't buy it There really are realities that you have to deal with. Now, let's look at Hebrews and what it says, and I can find out if somebody believes this or not based upon what they say they believe about communion. Hebrews 9, verse 12 says, He, Christ, entered once for all. So see, this isn't a, a, a perpetual thing. It can't be redone. He entered once for all. That's Friday afternoon in Palestine, friends. Once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He secured it, it is sure. Then Hebrews chapter 10, which we read earlier, and it says in verse 10 of chapter 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Same thing, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time, notice there's the emphasis again, notice this again, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, see this is not perpetual, this can't be reenacted, this can't be redone, a single offering he has perfected for all time, there it is again, those who are being sanctified. It's crucial that we see that there's a difference. Now, I would encourage you to think through what the difference is and say, which, which Jesus do I believe in? It's clarifying for us. Different, but still an issue, given that forgiveness is tied to the finished work of Christ in light of Ephesians 1 and not communion. Luther's small catechism says, in the sacrament we receive forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. That's from my Luther's small catechism when I was confirmed. The larger catechism says, for this reason we go to the sacrament because there we receive such a treasure by and in which we obtain forgiveness of sins. End of quotation. I can't do that. I can't forgive your sins. I can't do something to the bread and to the wine to bring forgiveness. Forgiveness is tied to the historic work of Christ and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the once and for all sacrifice. And you say, this is awful. Why would you even bring this kind of stuff up? I don't even feel excited anymore. And this isn't, this isn't good news at all. You know what? It's awful news. 
but it creates a dividing line to help you to think through which Jesus am I going to trust in forever? And not only that, it helps to equip you to know a great question you can ask somebody, what do you believe about communion? And if they say, I believe communion is so important that I've got to go there to have my sins atoned for, you've you got to tell them who Jesus is. That's motivating. This is an evangelistic equipping class if that's what you need it to be. See, it's wonderful to say, that's not what I believe. This is what I believe. I, I must tell them. I must help them. As I've been helped. Is it salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, or not? Maybe one more thing about this, and that would be history. Sometimes, I'm so guilty of this, we pretend like we're the first Christians ever to have walked the planet. You know, I'm like so prideful as to think that, you know what, I got my Bible and the Holy Spirit and we're good. Well, this stuff has all been thought through before. And it's so helpful to read a little bit about it because it protects us from being immature. You know, I want to be cool and hip and trendy. And, you know, here, here's kind of where we are right now with trends. You know, some of us, I don't really fall into this category. Some of you are tired of mom and dad's mall church okay so a couple decades ago um church growth movement hit big and church is relevant and we changed the way we do church and read all the heibel's books and all the stuff and and we're going to make church not look like church anymore and we're not going to make anything look old anymore and we're going to make it all look you know new when how'd that work out for you uh it led to your kids all being believers, right? They're just doing wonderful by now, and they're all level-headed. It's really a good thing that you watered it all down, right? That's not what sociology would tell us. That's not what history would tell us. They're not doing so good. You got sold a bill of goods. But now the opposite error happens, and we say, you know what? We don't like mom and dad's mall church. It was empty. Well, they were right about that. But mom and dad at least knew the gospel. Good motives, maybe. But now we're seeing another generation swing over here. If it's old, it's good. We have another problem. So how can we look historic and how can we look old and how can we learn from people who boast about being the oldest, whether they're telling the truth or not? And so I'm going to start doing more mystical things with communion, maybe. You know, let's rethink how we do this. You know, maybe we should kneel down when we take communion. That kind of seems like it's more um, reverential. That's better than mall church. Better than church growth movement. Let's kneel down. You know, maybe I could even do some things with the bread. Maybe I could hold the bread up. Hold the wine up. You know, I, I'm not above wanting to do things and be cool. I like cool. I like relevant. Historically, there's a reason why Protestants don't do that. Because historically, when it changes into the body and it changes into the blood, it is to be adored. That makes sense. If it really is Jesus, you bow down and you worship the elements. I'm not signing up for kneelers anytime soon. As cool as it might be. See? So it's helpful for us to read some history. Not that it's the authority, the Bible's the authority, but let's at least learn that Christians have worked through some of this stuff before. I'm going to read uh, just a, a couple sections out of a 1689 Protestant Confession of Faith. 
Again, this isn't where we find our authority, but let's just see and, and have some of these things ring true from history for us. This is the London Baptist Confession. Essentially, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian uh, version, would say the same thing. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering, uh, notice the Hebrews 10 emphasis, that one offering up of himself, not the priest offering him up, offering him up of himself, by himself. See, he's unaided by human sinful priests upon the cross, historic tied to 2,000 years ago, once for all and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, right? The alone propitiation or the alone atonement for all the sins of the elect. There's no priestcraft involved. Then, interestingly enough, another paragraph from the same confession of 1689 says, The denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, the bowing down, right, holding up, the lifting them up or carrying them about for adoration and reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and to the institution of Christ. Let's at least, let's at least acknowledge that the Spirit of God showed up before we were born. Let's at least acknowledge that there were Christians before us and they weren't all insane. And that there are some things to be learned here that might protect us from every wind of doctrine and not being caught up just in trendianity instead of biblical Christianity motivates me. I hope it motivates you. Well, that's the divisive side. That's the divisive side. Now let's end with, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper and let's have it be wonderful, worshipful, significant, not only because it divides us into those who believe the gospel and those who don't, it unites us. It's a great unifying factor. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so that's above, uh, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 17. That's our context. That's what he's been, been, been talking about, or he's been talking about communion. And before that, he said, but the following instructions, I do not commend you. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, granted, he's scolding them, but do notice in the communion context, he's saying, when you come together. Then in chapter 11, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. It's so important that we see and, and observe when you come together. When you come together. Oh, it's unifying to come together and to proclaim the Lord's death. This is what we all believe here. To proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That's what we all believe here. Together we're preaching this sermon. We're confessing and acknowledging He is our Savior. He is our Lord. We all together are willing to do what He says. Super unifying. That really helps me too because in a sense I've thought communion. I don't even really like the sound of that. This is my baggage growing up. Communion. What do you mean by communion? So I call it the Lord's Supper. I think that sounds better and that's kind of tough too. And he's like... I like communion now. 
It makes total sense. Communion. Oh, what's happening at communion? Because I used to think, oh, that's where you commune with God because you have to have the elements to do that. I don't like that. No. We come together and we have communion communally, right? Well, what, what do you do? This is a bad association, but just for word meaning, what do you do at a commune? You're together. Well, we're not, we're not starting a commune. Don't, don't, that's not it. But when we have communion, we are communing. We're together in doing this. And, and that is emphasizing it's a unifying thing. This is not an individual thing. This, by the way, just as a footnote, isn't what you decide to do with your family on vacation with Diet Coke and Doritos. This is a church ordinance, and those two verses would help us to see that. When you come together, when you come together, he brackets it that way. He's assuming this is something the church is going to do together, and it's important, and it's significant. We're making a unified proclamation together. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. It helps to protect us too when we talk about it and emphasize what it means. Saying, you know what, this is what we believe about communion. You know what, if you don't believe that, we'd love to do Bible studies with you and have you as our friends, which is true. But Omaha Bible Church believes these things about communion. And we commune together when we celebrate this. And it has a unifying effect. A good unifying effect for us. We're declaring the sufficient work of Jesus together. It is unifying. It is communing for us. So just as it has a divisive tendency, it has a uniting tendency. And so what I would ask you to do as a Christian, as a part of Omaha Bible Church, add it to your prayer list. As you're praying for the church and you're thinking, okay, what do I pray during communion? You know, I'm waiting and what do I do? I remember Jesus. Good job. You do. You can think deeper than that. What do you remember about it? It gets real deep. It gets, gets great. Added to your prayer list could be, Lord, please use what we're doing here and observing to strengthen the body of Christ. We're doing this together. Uh, use this to promote unity. Use this to promote our unity of focus and effort in gospel proclamation and gospel dedication. Lord, may this lead to further sanctification, spiritual growth in the body of Christ at OBC, in my life and in the life of others. This is a big deal. It's a great, great act of worship for us. It's a great means of grace that God has given to us. Praise be to Him. Father, thank You for our time together looking at this very important observance that You've given to us. And we confess that so many times we just go through the motions. Uh, we don't think about our own lives. We don't think about the life of the church. It's just another thing. Thank you that in a very real sense, we, we have uh, a sense of communion with other believers in other places too. But even around the world, there are believers who are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes by taking bread and wine today. And we are with them and they're with us. And we're grateful for that. We're also grateful for the fact that we're not the first Christians that there have been men and women and boys and girls for millennia now who have been reminded and who have been de dedicated and committed and blessed by the reality that we have in the bread and the wine and what they represent. Give us a renewed zeal for Christ and for His glory and for His honor and encourage us today even as we eat, even as we drink. In Jesus' name, amen.